Hello, and welcome to the My Messy Church podcast. Each week, we'll be going through your questions from the weekend services and doing our best to present answers from a biblical perspective. If you haven't yet listened to the weekend sermon, I want to encourage you to head over to curtislake.org backslash media for context of what we will be discussing today. We love getting your questions and cannot wait to grow together. So without further ado, let's dive into My Messy Church. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the My Messy Church podcast. Um, we are back after a week off uh, because of the Christmas party that we had a couple Sundays ago. Uh, so thank you for joining us this week. We've got, uh, let's see, eight eight or so questions here that we're going to go through. Um, so I'll start with the first one. Uh, this person writes, there are parts of the Bible that have evolved, uh, parentheses, i.e. multiple wives owning slaves, and we use, that was the culture back then as an excuse. Why can't we use that today? Um, all right, I'm going to try to dissect the question a little bit. Um, a little later on, somebody asked, can you please extend the character count? So, uh, which we can't, I'll just tell you that now, um, unfortunately. And so I know people are trying to like abbreviate their questions and sometimes, um, we lose a little bit of clarity in that. Uh, so the person writes, we, you, we use the, the, that was culture back then as an excuse. Why can't we use that today? So I'm, I'm, I'm confused whether the person is asking, um, whether we, whether we can or cannot use that as an excuse. So, uh, let me see if I can just try to unearth what is sort of under the question. Um, what I, um, I had mentioned in the message this past week that there has, uh, there, there has been, uh, you know, I think, I think Paul would have shared this with the Corinthian church. I think he did in some ways. I think we observe it today as well, uh, that there's this tendency to want to try to like nuance, the gospel, um, or, or somehow, you know, kind of let the gospel evolve into something that ultimately becomes something different from what it was. And my question was like, why, why, why do we feel such an urge to do that? Why do we feel like, you know, we need to somehow take what God has given to us and, um, and, and develop it, uh, into something that is a little more, I don't know, comfortable, for us. And so specifically with, uh, regard to the gospel, I think, and the reason why I asked, you know, like, why do we feel like we need to nuance it? I mean, the answer comes out of Paul, uh, in these first few chapters of Corinthians. And that is that like the gospel at its very core and base, um, truth is what he describes as its foolishness to the wisdom of the world, like the way the, the way the world wants to think, um, the way the world perceives its own reality, um, it, it like it just there's a stark contrast between that and the authentic, um, yeah, the authentic message of the gospel. There's just there's just a, a big difference there. It's not. Like the wisdom of this world doesn't find the pure essence of the gospel palatable, right? It just doesn't, it doesn't understand it. It doesn't line up or measure up to uh, its way of perceiving or understanding things. Not only that, but like the world is notoriously hungry for power. And the, the message of the gospel uh, is to those who are seeking power, who are seeking 
uh, ways of collecting authority and 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 having uh, having power, influence, authority over others. Uh, they find in the gospel something that is contemptibly weak, right? Um, because it 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 arises out of uh, the crucifixion of a, a violator of the law and society in Jesus. Right now, like I mean, as Christians, we have the benefit of understanding the crucifixion in a completely different way, but. Uh, again, like that proclamation of the gospel, it's just, it's, it's, it's something that is not ever, ever, ever going to line up with what the world desires in the way of its wisdom and the way of its power. And so there has been oftentimes a tendency for people to try to, to nuance it, to, uh, to make it, um, I don't know, make it intersect better with uh, with the world's desire for wisdom or the world's desire for power, or we just, as human beings, we fall into that trap, uh, ourselves, even, um, you know, even sometimes well-meaning people, I think can fall into the trap of, of allowing the gospel to become something different from what it really is. I had given the example of how, uh, that often manifests in either adding things to the gospel, right? And so we have a, a church history, that is littered with all kinds of additions that have been heaped onto the gospel. And then sometimes, you know, there's detractions from the gospel. Like there's a, uh, well, let's, let's, let's remove a little bit of the bite, um, that is there in the gospel. Let's, let's try to, uh, let, let's try to kind of bring it down a notch from its, its full impact and from the, 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 the full implication of, of what it ultimately will mean in our lives if we allow it to have the intended meaning in our lives. Um, you know, so for instance, uh, I, uh, I, I, I remember there's a, a, a church I had driven by a, a million times. And so out on their sign on the road, they had the name of the church and the name of the pastor, and they had one of those reader board signs and what they had chosen to put there. And it was, it was like, it was up there forever and ever and ever. Um, but it, it, like it read, uh, uh, KJV only church. And then at some point the, the sign got replaced with like a permanent sign and they actually had like in permanent, a permanent part of the sign that they had made for this church was, it says a KJV only church. Now, what does that mean? Well, it, um, KJV stands for King James version, uh, which is an English version of the Bible that is several hundred years old. Uh, many people who grew up in uh, evangelical churches probably grew up with this Bible. Um, if you know, if their church hadn't migrated over to something a little more uh, recent, like the NIV or or something like that. But anyway, so there's a there's a there's a faction of Christianity that somehow thinks that the King James version of the Bible is like, this is, this is God's authoritative word. Like if there's, if there's a real genuine Bible out there, this is the one this, and, and like, they see that as a, uh, as, as something to be proud of, right? Like they own that. Hey, here we are only going to look at the KJV. Um, and I would just say like, there's something, there's something so remarkably wrong with that ideology and the kind of culture that I think would permit for 
that way of thinking. Um, you know, there's, uh, we don't have time to get into it, but there's a million reasons why it doesn't make any real logical sense, uh, and why it really should have, you know, like that kind of mentality should have any place in, um, you know, in our churches. Uh, but anyway, like what, what I can see there is that like something's been added to the gospel, right? And so they say, okay, well, we believe in the gospel of Christ and, um, our, our prescription for how we believe that can be found only through the King James version of the Bible. So, you know, that would be, that'd be, uh, one of the ways and I'll bet, I mean, I just, I'd bet a lot of money that there's, you know, if I spent any time there, I'd find all kinds of other ways in which they've added things into the, the gospel message. And, and, uh, you know, speaking of signs, I mean, there's, uh, there, there, there's another kind of sign that I've seen, um, on churches, um, you know, where, you know, they have, uh, there's, there's been a, there's been a sign of like, you know, of what we believe or what is important to us that has become popular over the last few years. Um, sometimes you see these signs up in people's yards, but I find it very interesting to find a version of the sign up on a church building that talks about all these things that we believe. And you kind of go down through the list. Um, and, and nowhere on that sign is there any, is there anything about Jesus? Like Jesus's name isn't on there, anything about Jesus, or that would even, you know, somehow suggest that within the walls of that church is a group of people that gather together who have a deep, um, a deep love for, uh, and allegiance to Jesus as Lord and Savior, and 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 yet this is the thing that they want to sort of advertise uh, on their building as, hey, when you come here, this is what we believe. And so, I'd say that, like, my guess is that there's probably uh, ways that the there that there have been certain like things kind of taken away from the gospel, or like what are some of those most profound implications of what the gospel ought to mean in our lives. So anyway. Um, that's kind of specifically what I said. So, you know, this person is like broadening that conversation beyond the gospel into the Bible and asking, um, you know, what do we do if I, again, I could just sort of read into the questions, like, what do we do with these various parts of the Bible where, um, you know, clearly there's a, a, um, there's a disconnect between what we see written there and, um, I don't know what we know to be right or, or how we live, uh, today. They give the example of multiple wives. So like in the Bible, you see, uh, lots of instances of, uh, polygamous, uh, relationships, right? Uh, specifically men marrying multiple wives. Um, and also there's, uh, there is slavery, um, or, uh, the fact of within a, a society, the fact that there are people who live as servants or as slaves and, you know, and obviously um, for us today like that, like to, to think about somebody living in slavery would, of course, um, that would be that would be deeply problematic for us. Like we'd see that as just inherently wrong that a human being could own uh, another human being like as if that what that person were a piece of property, right? Like we believe in the, um, in the dignity of, of every person and the equality of every person. So anyway, so what do you, what do you do with these things? And, um, one thing that I would, uh, like encourage people to remember is that, uh, the Bible is a very, uh, it's a very complex, uh, collection of literature, you know, and a lot of times like people make arguments about, um, about how, 
unreliable the Bible is because of like some of these problematic things in there. And I think more often than not, uh, you know, the, the real issue is just kind of an understanding of what it is that we're, that we're reading, um, when we're reading such things, you know, so for instance, like we have to make a distinction between what the Bible seems to be suggesting as prescriptive for our lives. Uh, that is how it is offering to us, um, uh, insight and truth into how we ought to live our lives, right? Um, so that'd be prescriptive, uh, as opposed to things that are simply descriptive, right? So the fact that you might have, uh, narratives in the Bible that describe, um, that describe certain things, uh, or the way things are, doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, that, that, you know, what God is doing is, you know, telling us, okay, well, this is how then I want you to live your life. Um, you know, you're, uh, you're, you're going to find it very difficult. Let's say your, uh, your theological persuasion is, uh, in support of polygamy, right? And we know there have been like, um, cultic, uh, branches of religion, um, that did, or maybe even today continue to persist in teaching such a thing. So let's just say, let's say that's your theological bent and, and you're going to make the case that the Bible supports, uh, and teaches that when it comes to the definition of marriage and what God intended for humankind, that from the beginning, God intended for, um, for, for men to have the opportunity to marry multiple women. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like that's, that's a, that's a very difficult theological case to make. I mean, you can do it, right? Like you could, you could build that argument, but, um, uh, but I mean, personally, I'd find that one pretty fairly easy to kind of tear down as, uh, just a misrepresentation of what the Bible actually teaches. Um, and so, yeah, like beyond that, beyond, so beyond the fact that we have the difference between sometimes things that are uh, prescriptive and descriptive, then you do also have these culture gaps that exist between, uh, the way people, uh, might've lived two, 3000 years ago in the way we live today. And so part of our job of studying the Bible is, uh, first of all, understanding like what did, when, when, when scripture was written, whatever piece of scripture it is that you're writing, like uh, some of the questions that you ask in good Bible study is, well, who was this written to? Who was the audience? Uh, what was the person or the people, um, that were intended to read this thing and what would it have meant to them? And, uh, sometimes that's fairly easy to figure out. Sometimes that takes a tremendous amount, uh, of, of work. Um, you know, sometimes research like whole PhD programs oftentimes revolve around like trying to uncover the meaning of some particular text. Um, so w what I would say, um, just to, you know, by way of encouragement, so people don't just like kind of throw their hands up and say, well, you know, what, how, how could I ever even begin to approach the Bible? Um, like if you really have an honest and sincere heart that is, that desires to understand what God reveals to us through his word, these challenges you're going to find, honestly, you're going to find these challenges kind of like, you know, melting away in the background. Um, and, and I don't mean to say that like, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't have a good, uh, do a good job or, 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 or try to provide insight to, or just ignore difficult texts. Uh, we're going to have, we're going to, in our study of first Corinthians here, we're going to have some difficult texts, you know, that are coming up. And, uh, you know, some of which, you know, may, we may find are, um, 
uh, are less conclusive than we would like for them to be. And so like, what do you do with that? Do you just, do you just abandon it and pass it off as impossible? No, I, I think you, you know, you roll your sleeves up, you dig in and you, um, you, you, you try to bring, uh, into the conversation every bit that you possibly can to try to best understand what God's wanting to communicate to us. Um, there's also, uh, this might, this might, you know, ruffle some feathers or make people feel, um, a, a little uncomfortable, but like, like there are like, to me, my perspective of scripture is that like, you know, the, the Bible, um, it, it reveals God's truth to us, right? And it is profitable to our lives for instructing us, um, for helping us uh, to think um, to think better, right? Like there's a um, there's a, a recalibration of our minds that needs to take place uh, because the wiring of our minds is broken. Uh, it is affected by the reality of sin uh, and the brokenness in which we live. And so uh, understanding and having God's truth um, revealed to us, you know, like the curtain being kind of pulled back and us being able to see more rightly the, the like the picture of how things actually are as opposed to the picture of how we thought things were uh, like that's important um that, that's an important function of scripture and and all of the bible i i think you know kind of works toward that end but then like within this massive collection of writings that we have there are going to be certain parts of it that are going to feel far more impactful and important to us than than other parts will. Um, I, I, in other words, I mean, I think it's perfectly appropriate. While I wouldn't want to just like ignore parts of scripture, um, there are going to be parts of scripture that I spend way, way more of my my time uh, and invest my resources in than others because of uh, because of the the significance that you know they actually um, they attach to my life. But you know, just like when you're reading a good novel i mean there there are going to be parts of that that are um that that are much more closely tied to the main part of the story uh and then sometimes like a good author will have parts of that novel that are just kind of removed from the center of the story and yet while uh, while those things could have been just maybe left out um, they, they, they do provide something more. Um, they, and, and yeah, they, they, they color in, I think a little, uh, a little more, uh, and, and in their own very little and maybe minor way, uh, they contribute to the whole thing. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I say all that again, just to, uh, to, uh, it really bothers me that I think some people have this feeling or this attitude that, you know, the Bible is just, it's an ancient book. I'm never going to understand it. I could never understand it. So I'm not going to bother. Uh, or, um, you know, I've been told that the Bible has all kinds of these, you know, problems and difficulties and challenges, um, that it contradicts itself all over the place. And wow. You know, like, yeah, if that's kind of where you, where you sit and, and it's, it's actually created a, um, a block for you to, 
jump in and dive in, I want to encourage you to like get over that hurdle and, and jump in. I think you're going to be really, really surprised at what you actually find in there. Um, all right. Well, that, that was a good question. Thank you for that. Uh, next question is, how do you know the difference between admonishment and judgment? Uh, so we talked about admonishment, you know, as being this, um, something like a, uh, a, a loving appeal that's made from one person to another, um, with, with a, with a flavor of caution, right? Um, if we were to use the analogy of, uh, two friends, uh, you have, you have one who is, you know, maybe recognizing something in the life of another and, and just, and, and, and can see, um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I imagine a lot of us maybe have watched a friend get into a relationship. This, this seems like this would be kind of a common occurrence for us to identify. So his friend gets in a relationship with another person and you see your friend just fall head over heels in love, right? Um, with this other person. And so, um, that your friend may have found some of their faculties, uh, kind of, uh, weakened, uh, for being objective or really seeing, uh, perhaps how actually beneficial this relationship may be, uh, for him or her. And so you as, as a person that first of all, has a deep love and affection for your friend, um, but also has the benefit of sort of sitting on the outside and maybe observing from a different perspective, the nature of this relationship. Like, let's say that the person that your friend has fallen madly in love with is extremely manipulative or controlling or possesses some other kinds of like personality flaws that are really, really, really troubling and potentially even harmful towards your friend. Your friend can't see it, right? Because your friend's just in love. And there's, uh, uh, there's nothing wrong with this other person. Um, you might, you, you might be in a place where you could lovingly appeal. Like you can't control what, what your friend's going to do with, you know, whether they're going to pursue this relationship or not. Right. Like that's the part of, um, you know, this, your friend has free will, uh, and, and we honor and respect the free will that, uh, each of us exercises, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't, you know, or uh, like to be a good friend means to just keep your mouth shut and mind your own business. I mean, sometimes we have to keep our mouth shut and mind our own business, but other times it's, it's good. And, and, you know, the loving thing to do to, to, to appeal to this person that maybe we see going down a road that is not healthy. Um, now when we do that, obviously our attitude ought to be such that, that we remain humble, right? It's, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I'm seeing things in this relationship and, you know, and, and, uh, I'm seeing things and what I'm seeing is arising out of like these own problems that I have, you know, maybe I, uh, maybe I had an experience in a relationship, uh, that I haven't healed from. And so now I'm kind of carrying that baggage into, into this and, uh, it, 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 I don't know, it's creating jealousy or, or, or now like I'm the one that's actually blinded to what's going on there. And, and so now I'm, I'm inserting my two cents and those two cents don't really even make any sense. Uh, so we have to, we have to, we come into this with humility, uh, with an understanding that, um, you know, first of all, we could be wrong in our assessment of things. Uh, but I, I think that, I think that sometimes we have, we've just become so individualized uh, and we become so scared of, uh, uh, of 
overstepping or or whatever that we 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 just stop actually being in one another's lives in ways that are are healthy and constructive um so the the point i was trying to make on sunday is that like as christians admonishment is good right it should be a part of our culture and so admonishment is different from judgment in that judgment is judgment first of all is often harsh in the way it comes off uh so both in its tone uh judgment is off often done without the benefit of love <laughs> that is coming alongside of it. Uh, judgment is often final uh, in, in that like we make the judgment and in, in our minds we're convinced of this thing and we've passed judgment on that uh, and, and that's the way it is. And so sometimes there's a lack of humility there. Uh, and, 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 you know, there's a, there, there can be an, un, um, uh, uh, we can forget that we don't know everything, right? There's only one. There's only one good judge, right? That judges rightly all the time, and that is God, because God knows all and sees all, uh, and God knows not only what is done out in the open, uh, you know, things that we can observe, but God also knows the inner workings of the heart. And so, judgment's a very difficult thing for us to engage in as human beings. Um, and so there, there, you know, big difference there, I think, between, uh, between admonishment and judgment, uh, judgment, um, I had mentioned, um, you know, things like, uh, things like control, um, like there are ways that religions have tried to assert and hold power over people, uh, you leveraging like the, the religious structures that have been created, um, that ultimately become oppressive and very, very harmful. Um, and so that's not what we, 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 we want to get all of that out of, um, our culture, but we do want, you know, to be the kind of community, uh, where we are looking to build one another up. Uh, I had mentioned like as a person who, you know, may find myself in a position of, of listening. Um, so, you know, if I envision myself sitting in a, um, in something like a, a church service, where I am listening to another person uh, talk about God's word uh, is providing some instruction there. I hope that I come to the table hungry and thirsty, right? Like ready to eat and to receive something that is being delivered. Like that, that ought to be the posture that I, I, I carry. And so I don't know uh, of the uh, many, many people that might walk into our church uh, week after week, like that would be the question, you know, are you, you know, are you, are you coming feeling a high degree of motivation to hear something from God? Um, you know, whether, whether that comes via like the Holy spirit speaking in the still small voice into your heart or whether it comes via, uh, the, the instrument of another human being, they may happen to be, um, teaching something from God's word is my, is my posture there? Is, am I there ready to be, to be admonished, right? To, if there's an area of my life that needs warning, <laughs> um, that needs to be cautioned, uh, that needs to be sort of uncovered and exposed. Like, am I, am I actually willing to let that happen or am I just closed off to it? Um, all right. Next question. Paul had great authority to admonish who now has that authority and how would that look? 
so, you know, obviously Paul has all, all kinds of things to say about this church, and he did. He did possess some um, very unique apostolic authority um, that was specific to him, um, but it was also uh, somewhat universal in that, like, uh, remember that, like, Paul, while Paul could have, like he had like in his toolbox as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he had in his toolbox the ability to appeal to the authority of that apostleship if he wanted to, but you always find him kind of reluctant to do that. Um, like in other words, to say, you know, here's my business card, look at my title, uh, this is who I am, and so you have to listen to me by virtue of that. Uh, that that really isn't how Paul was motivated in his heart. Paul rather, and he uses the language of a father and children, a parent and children to describe the kind of endearing infect, affection that he had, uh, not infection, but affection that he had for, uh, for the people that he had brought into the faith, right? Like, um, Paul wasn't, Paul wasn't looking to like become a Lord, over the serfs of, um, yeah, of some church, uh, rather because Paul also uses language of describing those same people that he describes as his children. He also at times calls them brothers and sisters. And so, uh, there's, there's an equality that Paul, uh, holds the members of, uh, the church of God, to hold with him, right? He doesn't see himself in like this hierarchy where he's kind of sitting there at the top or, or near the top. And, um, there's a bunch of people that just have to sort of listen to him and, and, and do whatever he says. Like, that's not what's going on in his heart. Um, authority did sometimes, uh, give like compel him by necessity to, uh, to do what he was called to do, right? Like if there was instruction that needed to be given, then to instruct, if there was correction that was needed to be given, then to correct, right? Like that's some of what comes with the responsibilities of having authority. Uh, but, but again, like he, he, I think he preferred to, um, to appeal to and to reach, you know, like rather than, um, you know, top down, uh, toward the people that were under him, like reach more out to the people that he saw as, uh, as co-laborers and, um, co-members of the bride of Christ. Um, so who, who now has that authority and how would that look? Um, so there's, there's some similarities in that, uh, we will like in a church community, you are going to have, um, there are going to be varying levels of authority that various people might have. Uh, and so like just kind of taking our situation here, um, you know, I, like I'm the lead pastor of the church. And so I have, I have some spiritual authority. Uh, now my spiritual authority, it really extends to the, um, to the limit that a person enters into that relationship. Uh, you know, we live in America, right? And so in America, there's no, um, there's no state sanctioned church. Um, like, I mean, it used to be that the, the state and the church were, um, uh, 
inextricably tied together. And like you, you, you couldn't, there, there were no, there was no distinction between the two institutions. They were essentially one and the same. And so in that kind of a structure, you'd have the ability of people that had religious power were exercising at the very same time, political power. Uh, that is, you know, not only could they preach on or teach the word of God, however they <laughs> decided they wanted to do that, they could then enforce uh, how the the people that were in their community, how they lived that out. So that like, that's not us. I mean, I don't, um, yeah, we don't, we don't do that. Um, we'd say that like in our, uh, uh, you know, we live in a, a, a liberal democracy, right? Uh, that allows for, for every person to decide how they want to live their lives, right? And so we all exercise our own free will and agency and freedom uh, as, as we want to. Uh, so if I come into a church community, right, and I, I sort of voluntarily enter into this, this, this family, um, ideally one of the things that I am doing is I am bringing my life into uh, submission of the, the, the culture and the community there. And that doesn't just mean like, okay, well, I'm going to, well, first of all, it doesn't at all mean I'm just going to do whatever the pastor tells me to do. Um, that's, that, that'd be a very dangerous, very, very dangerous. Um, uh, we probably call that a cult, right? Uh, but there is a, but I, I, yeah, I, I think we've sort of like, you know, the pendulum is swung in the other direction where we, we largely see ourselves as just very independent of one another, where we have very little accountability to, um, to, to one another at all. Uh, and so, yeah, I get it. Like everybody that, like literally every single person who is not a paid staff member of our church they, they come in the church or they participate in the church with the ability to walk away from the church, like specifically this church, anytime they want to, right? I mean, they just, they can never come back if that's what they choose to do. Um, the, the, the church doesn't have control over their, over their life, over their property uh, or anything like that. And so... Uh, I think sometimes we see ourselves as just a bunch of, uh, I've used the expression of just like free agents, where these Christian free agents that happen to choose this place to come and to worship uh, together. And unfortunately, I think that that's also a, a really unhealthy way in which to be a church. We ought to see ourselves more as as a family structure. We ought to see ourselves more as a, a community that has, yes, has voluntarily come together and that while we're doing everything we can to ensure that we don't start creating and sustaining these unhealthy levels of control and power uh, between perceived spiritual authorities and those who are not perceived as spiritual authorities, like we don't, you know, we're, 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 we're trying really hard to avoid kind of going in that direction. We, we still, we ought to, we ought to look at one another as as people that we are both responsible for and also responsible to right like that's that's how i understand and see and what i crave for in my church community um i am entering into a life with other people for whom i am responsible for and also accountable to 
right? And so what does this look like? Well, I mean, it looks like a whole bunch of people that are now in a relational position to support each other with love and to carry one another's burdens and also at the same time to hold one another accountable, which we're going to see as we proceed, um, you know, kind of like in the chapter five, like some of the really tricky ways this might play out. And so, um, the, who has the authority to admonish? Well, I, I'd say, I say we all do. Um, we, uh, as evangelicals, we believe in this thing called the priesthood of all believers, which means that while there may be pastors of churches, uh, there may be, uh, uh, you know, people who hold particular offices that have more responsibility, uh, as well as more authority when it comes to spiritual matters in the lives of the people there that, again, we voluntarily enter into, um, that, that ultimately we are talking about a level playing field when it comes to like, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, so before my name, I have the, the letters R E V, right? <laughs> so I am a, I'm a reverend. I am a, I am an official member of the clergy and while in some tr- church traditions or, um, you know, historically there's been a distinction made between people who are members of the clergy and then lay people, right. As if like, there's almost this sort of qualitative difference between those two things. We, we don't see that. Um, you know, we see, uh, we see the authority, like whatever, whatever authority I might have, whatever spiritual authority I might carry in my church, um, I think is analogous to the kind of authority that husbands and wives have toward one another in a marriage in a, in a, in a right Christian marriage, there is a, um, uh, what we call mutual submission that happens between a husband and a wife, right? The husband has authority over his wife and also the wife has authority over her husband. Um, and, 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 and there's a, you know, like that authority isn't seen as power and dominance and control, but actually it is a, um, it is a, a loving kind of way in which uh, the person who has authority serves the person over whom they have that authority. So it's kind of like turned upside down. Uh, all right. Again, great question. Uh, next question. How do you discern arrogance versus passion? Uh, so I'm guessing the person here is uh, asking, yeah, like, you know, when it comes to, to, things that I, I, I love, I don't know, I love talking about uh, or expressing or things that I love getting my life involved in or doing, uh, you know, am I, yeah, am I, am I, is that arrogance, right? Uh, so um, if I, if I could understand the question, maybe asking something like, um, you know, so we, I, I subscribe to, um, uh, to certain things I see as true as taught through the word of God. Right. And, 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 you know, much of that, that I, that I believe for myself, I'm also passionate about and wish that others believed it as well. Um, and so, uh, first of all, I think that that's, appropriate. Um, I get that we live in a particular cultural moment where, uh, the, the desire is often that every person just be left to think and to believe however they want and be left alone. And, you know, we should not be trying to indoctrinate other people, um, 
or yeah, or convert them into our way of thinking. Uh, and you know, that's a little strange, right? Because it, it, um, that that's, that's sort of self-contradictory. Um, <laughs> like, like just holding that premise is I, I think trying to assert, uh, a certain kind of truth up, upon us all. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So it's like, all right, well, if I, if I hold these, if, if I hold something like the, the fact of Christ's death and resurrection and soon coming return as, uh, not only being important for me personally, which I do, but also being important for the world to know how do I how do I actually live out and and proclaim that message in a way that doesn't come off as arrogant and 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 it is truly in fact just passionate and I would concede that sometimes that can be that can be difficult to navigate that um, you know somebody somebody came and said hey can I can I make a meeting with you and and we so we sit down we talk and they're like all right so man I just I just feel like God. Like he wants me to, he, he just wants me to tell the world about Jesus. Um, like every person that I come into contact with, like, I, I just, I really believe like God has just filled my heart to help people find Jesus. And, and so I want to introduce people to Jesus. And that includes, uh, the time that I spend at work, right? Like I work at this place and I, I come across and interact with, uh, 130 people <laughs> like every single day. Uh, and, and, you know, I know my work would be pretty unhappy if I was, you know, trying to distract people away from their jobs while I was telling them about Jesus. But I just like, this is, um, this is just so in me and I, I can't help it. It's like, all right, well, I, first of all, I love, I love the fact that that passion is there. And I probably would, <laughs> I probably caution such a person, um, to think about like what it means to be, uh, an appropriate ambassador for Jesus. And I get like a lot of times we, again, the pendulum is just swung in the other direction and we just never say anything about Jesus. We never open our hearts or share our lives with other people because we don't want to offend or we don't want to, um, yeah, we like we don't we don't want to interrupt or disrupt the the uh, the family dinner with talk of religion, politics, or money, right? Like the three big things, uh, and that's 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 problematic. Also, a complete unwillingness to to venture into uh, sharing uh, what is most important to us and what is also eternally significant uh, for other people, but while, while I, I'd grant that I, I, we do, um, yeah, so, so much of like what has, what people have tried to do in the name of serving Christ has, has unfortunately, it's not just that it's come off as arrogant. Sometimes it's just has been arrogant. Um, in fact, if it's coming off as arrogant, there's a probably a good chance that, that it is. Uh, and so we do have to really lead with love, uh, when we're thinking about how we are serving one another, including serving one another with the greatest story that was ever told. Um, all right, I've been st really studying this a lot this summer. How do you really know if you are in Christ? What is your take on that? Uh, so we talked about how, like, what Paul's desire for the church was was for them to be found in Christ. Uh, if Paul had one dream, one desire, one hope for any single person, it would be that that person was in Christ. Like he did not care about how big their bank accounts were. He didn't care if they had a uh, a mansion that they were living in or were homeless. Um, he, he didn't care if uh, they were among the rich. 
and the powerful or uh, whether they were part of the um, the oppressed and vulnerable. Like it just like the 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 absolute number one thing that God or that Paul wanted uh, for people was that they be found in Christ. And so um, that just that's sort of what led um, his life and how he how he lived his life. How do I know I'm in Christ? Um, I mean, I, like, I know, I know I'm in Christ by virtue of the fact that God's spirit has come and dwell in my heart and life. And I know that can sound like a kind of subjective experience. And I guess to a great degree it is. Um, but what scripture reveals to us is that that is the, uh, you think about when, you know, when you want to purchase something that's really expensive, like a house, you put a deposit on it. Right. And that deposit is a guarantee that full payment is ultimately going to be made for that thing that you want to buy. And the Holy Spirit is described similarly in the life of the believer that the spirit comes into our lives as sort of uh, a deposit or earnest money that God has um, has granted to us as a promise for the ultimate uh, reward of living forever with Christ. And so the spirit is um, uh, he is the reality um, uh, that that convinces me that I am I am in Christ. Uh, I think I know I'm I'm in Christ um, by the uh, what I describe. It means to be in Christ means to be in union with Christ. And again, like nobody else can can um, necessarily assess whether or not I am experiencing union with Christ. All I can do is kind of talk about it from uh, my own experience. And so if somebody else were asking, like, how do I know I'm in Christ? I'd say, well, you know, are you, are you living in union with him? Are you, do you find yourself having your, um, your desires growing more toward what Christ desires are for you? Uh, like, yeah, is there, is there, is there a growing love and affection for Christ? You know, do you, would you describe yourself as wanting, um, to not only profess, but also to live out allegiance to him as, as Lord, um, as the King of your life? Like, are you, are you wanting to bring your life into, um, uh, into submission to, to what he wants for you? Um, broken as you may be, um, far off as you may be, um, immoral as you may have, uh, perceived your life has been, you know, up until now, like Jesus fortunately takes us just as we are. Um, he takes the broken pieces. He takes the mess, uh, of our lives. He, he, he takes the all, all, you know, just all the ways in which, like we know we ought to be despised and rejected. And then, um, he, he embraces us anyway. So am I entering into that union with him? Am I, um, am, am I, am, am I willingly, uh, uh, putting my life, uh, into the life of Christ? Like that's, that's to me, like, that's what it means to be in Christ. Um, you can't measure in Christness, you know, by means of like how, how many religious things you do or how, uh, or how good 
you've been or how bad you haven't been, you know, things like that. Like we, we don't, it don't, we don't measure that way. Um, it's, it's really kind of this question of, am, am I, am I, am I putting my life into his, am I, uh, I, I quoted that, um, that neat little verse uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, you know, that pictures Christ standing at the doors of our hearts, knocking says, Hey, I'm here at the door knocking on your heart. If anybody will open the door, I will come in and be with him. And he with me, like, is that, is that the reality of my life right now? If it is, then I'd say I'm in Christ. If it isn't, then, um, you know, maybe, maybe it's time for me to open that door and to, to let Christ truly come in. Uh, and then related to that, somebody says, does in Christ mean to be in Christ crucified with how we live our lives? Like Paul says in one 23, uh, let me pull up one 23 here. Um, Verse 22, for the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. All right. Uh, so that is not in 123. They mean 423. Nope, because there's not even 23 verses, only 21. Anyway. All right. Um, well, uh, I don't know what to do that. Does, does in Christ mean to be in Christ crucified with how we live our lives? Um, so to the extent that I can understand what's being asked here, I, I'd say, I mean, yeah, like being in Christ means to be identifying uh, with Christ. So we identify with Christ in his crucifixion, right? That is, we die to ourselves. Um, and then we identify with Christ in his resurrection also. And, and so we also anticipate and wait for the resurrection of our own bodies. And then in the in-between, in, you know, uh, between the, the death and our, you know, our final resurrection, we live our lives identified with Christ, seeking to obey his commands, uh, to follow in his footsteps, you know, to ultimately become more like him in thought, word, and deed. Uh, and last question, um, why, why is there no salvation prayer each week for those feeling convicted of the Holy Spirit? Um, why, uh, yeah. All right. Uh, so I can understand, I can definitely understand where this is coming from. My guess is that, um, you know, this person probably had a kind of church experience where, um, where there was what, what they're describing as a salvation prayer, uh, which presumably would be, you know, me or somebody else kind of leading a prayer for the congregation to pray along in the event that there was somebody there, uh, wanting salvation. And, and so, um, first of all, I would just say like, I, I, like, I don't have a problem with that at all. I mean, I think that, uh, I think that for, for churches or for pastors who, who, who want to sort of like go about, um, you know, the, the worship service in that way. I, I mean, I think that's great. That's absolutely fine. I do think though, that like to just ultimately, um, condense or boil down like salvation to, uh, to, to simply a prayer, which I, like, I grew up with that. I mean, I, gr I grew up with, and, and, and I don't, I, like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't deny, I'm like, so I'm not going to say this is, this is wrong or that I, like, I don't believe this, but, um, I, you know, I grew up with the, you know, the, the, 
the revivalationist, you know, kind of mindset of, all right, we need to, we need to get a person to reach a point where they're make, ready to make a decision for Christ and to pray, like we call it the sinner's prayer. Uh, and that, you know, different churches had different ways that they might, you know, cleverly organize that, right? Like, um, you know, helping people to understand the ABCs of salvation, right? And each of the, the ABCs stood for these different things that kind of needed to be contained in the prayer in order for the prayer to qualify as a prayer of salvation. And again, I'm not, I'm, I'm not suggesting that there's, there's anything inherently wrong with that. But I do think that like the work that God is doing in the heart of a person who is, um, and I'll use, you know, Bible words for this, but like unregenerate, that is a person who is spiritually dead and does not have the spirit of God living in them. Right. And who is, uh, who is currently like unsaved, um, the, that transforming work that God does in the, the heart of a person, like it, it's going to express itself in ways that are at times punctiliar, like, or like, you know, momentary and, 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 and sometimes dramatic, uh, and other times less punctiliar and far less dramatic. Um, and, and, you know, I, I want to be the kind of place that is ready, you know, for both of those things to happen. Um, and so, yeah, in my own personal experience, like I, like I have the benefit of kind of being able to sort of look back at a, a real, tangible moment when I expressed faith in God through Jesus, like, and received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Like I was, um, for me, I, I was, I, I, no more than five, right? Because I can, I, so, uh, yeah, I can remember the, um, uh, like what I, what it was like when I was five years old. Uh, so I don't know if it happened earlier than this or not, but I, I, I know that, like there was as a, as, as a child of that age, I had been taught something and that is that, um, you know, that, that, that God loved me and that, uh, that I, like every other person had, uh, um, a sin that was a part of and, and, and sort of defined my life and that like Jesus took care of the, um, the, the penalty and the consequences of my sin, if I would just simply, you know, received his gift of salvation, um, then he would come into my heart and, and, um, and I, I experience union with him. Right. So something, something to that effect. And so anyway, I, I remember, and of course I like back in my day, um, it was, there was also the, 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 um, the promise of heaven and the threat of hell, right? Like you don't want to go to hell, do you? Well, then you better become a Christian or receive Jesus as your savior. And then you can go to heaven and not to hell. Well, as a young child, last thing in the world you want to do um, is go to hell. And so I do, I, I, I remember, uh, I remember praying many times that Jesus would come into my heart. And the reason why I did it many times is because like I, I, I literally remember having the thought, oh, I wonder if I actually did that or was that just a dream that I asked Jesus into my heart? So I haven't actually done the thing yet. Well, maybe I better do it now. And, you know, and then a third time down the road, I was like, I wonder if I just dreamed that I dreamed that I did that, you know, like, and, and on and on it went. And so I'm, I think you could understand um, uh, the mindset of a five-year-old that just wants to make sure you, you, you get it right. Well, um, 
I mean, that comes out of a, that comes out of a, a, you know, a kind of like way of seeing salvation as, you know, this, just this very linear thing. Um, and again, like I, I don't, I don't deny a, a linear sense in which, you know, becoming a Christian happens. Like this is the way a, a person experiences coming into the Christian faith can be very much that it could be, you know, like I was a sinner lost and away from God. And then I, like, I came down to an altar and I prayed a prayer and Jesus entered into my heart and life. And from that point on, I've been serving him as a Christian. And it's like, that's, um, I think, I think that that absolutely can be a way in which a person experiences salvation. Um, and, and, you know, but, but it's not the only way, um, you know, sometimes like, like people are, um, kind of, you know, moving in that direction. And I do agree that like, you know, probably I probably at some point, you know, a a person ought to, you know, be able to, yeah. Um, yeah, they ought to be able to, refer back to, it's like, you know, this is like, this is when I surrendered my heart and life to Christ. I mean, I think that, I think that the expectation that that would be a part of our stories seems appropriate to me. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I, I, I guess I just, I don't find it necessary to like every single week, like this is the thing we're going to do. You know, ought we provide, ought we to provide more opportunity as a church community, um, you know, for, for things like communal prayer, for people to come forward, um, and to, you know, to, I don't know, to, yeah. I mean, I grew up in a church where it was like, there were altar calls all the time, right? People, whatever the, whatever the thing that was being preached on, like at the end of the service, you know, you called people to the altar and the sign of success as to whether or not it was a good service or whether or not God's spirit was there was how many people came to the altar and did people cry and weep at the altar? And again, I don't, I don't, I don't dismiss the, um, the significance of like some of those experiences in our lives. Um, but I just, I I also don't, I don't, I don't boil down all the work of God as like having to be confined to that particular kind of experience. And, and so, um, yeah, I uh, believe me, there's, um, there's things I wrestle about, um, all the time and trying to figure out how best to, help provide a, a truly spiritual atmosphere p- for people to experience God. Um, which again, I would not limit or confine to like <laughs> the end of a church service, uh, at, uh, I'm saying the word altar. So I'm, I probably, some people might not even know what that means. The, well, I guess, yeah, we always had the altar of like when people get married. Right. So that, the, like that symbolic thing that you kind of come forward that sort of serves as, uh, um, a, a, a religious device, uh, where you, you, you meet God. Um, anyway, so, uh, I don't know if I just like totally didn't answer that question or what, but all right. Good positive note to leave on. Right, Shana. Absolutely. All right. Shana says, uh, that's good. So, uh, all right, that's it. Thank you so much for listening. And, um, have a great Christmas. I, I don't know. We haven't talked about whether or not there's a podcast next week. My guess is there might, there may not be. I don't know. Um, but uh, anyway, have a great Christmas and uh, we'll see you. We'll see you soon. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of My Messy Church. If you haven't done so yet, be sure to head to your app store and download the Curtis Lake Church app for easy access to all of our content. 
Thank you so much for joining us and we can't wait to be with you next week.